Hello and welcome to the Farming for Change podcast. If you haven't listened to our first episode, you might want to start there to learn a bit more about our hosts, Ben and James, and what this podcast is all about. Essentially, it's two farmers chatting, and maybe sometimes arguing, about regenerative agriculture and how they're trying to do things differently. Joining Ben and James today, we have Ed Brown, an agronomist at Hutchinson and one of just two bioagroecologists in the UK. Ed, can you introduce yourself, please? So, yeah, hi, Ed Brown. Currently, I am head of agroecology for HR Hutchinson. So, I've been an agronomist for nine years. I trained conventionally and have practiced conventionally for probably the first three or four of those. And then more recently, specialised in regenerative agriculture or agroecology and now spend most of my time helping farmers practically implement the principles that we're about to talk about. Great so today Ed, James and Ben are going to be discussing the five main principles of regenerative farming and some of the barriers and attitudes around making the change to this way of farming. We're going to kick things off with covering the first principle don't disturb the soil over to you. Morning everyone. Yeah, we thought we'd just um, have a general chat around um, some of the challenges that um, we face when it comes to affecting change and trying to move from sort of what we've known for generations, I suppose, in terms of how we farm and how we produce food. And we thought we would just have a chat around some of the issues around cultivation, tillage, all the rest of it. Ironically, um, Ed, yesterday I think you were out actually ploughing for the day, which is sort of... is kind of uh, is one of the great evils. So maybe you can maybe you can have a talk about that for a minute. I broke broke rule number one. Yeah, so I did spend the day ploughing yesterday, but it, we got into a good discussion last night around actually we, we need to be really careful about not being too evangelical and militant over these these principles. You know, they those principles are sound, they work, but actually sometimes you need to go against them, and and it's the right thing to do. So yeah, on a farm yesterday where soil health is is pretty bad it's been been farmed conventionally not particularly well for for 15 years or more it's got terrible black grass issues compacted to around nine inches so we decided that actually plowing it would would bury some evils in terms of black grass it'll it'll bring up our compaction layer and just set us off on a fresh start basically so sometimes you've got to break the rules yeah, yeah. well i was going to jump in so go ben yeah. go thanks james I think the most important thing on the whole soil part of regenerative agriculture is to remember that there's a triangle, and the triangle is the physics of soil, the chemistry of soil, and the biology of soil. And it, and it seems that we are almost impossible in, in, in enabling to do all three together. And what seems to happen is for years and years and years we've been chemical and physical based and then we all just step out of the triangle and become biologically based. And, and that becomes a really problematic when a soil is a chemical and physical junkie. And all of a sudden you expect biology to just take up the slack immediately. So I think, personally, I think we, we need to look at all three. And nature has an incredible way of resetting herself as well, in terms of fire, floods, famines, that sort of thing. And what I thought was very interesting is... When I had Matt, Matt Shardlow from Bug Life out to, to the farm the, the one time, and we had a bit a huge pile of soil in, in the corner of a field that had no vegetation on it at all, it had only just been put there, he was he was really excited. He said it's really important to have some bare soil around, and he showed me all the different beetles and various things that were living in the first colonisers into into bare soil. <laughs> so it's like anything, and Ed said it, 
if you become a militant person in something, you can often cause yourself some huge problems. And uh, Ian Robertson's another good one of saying, you know, I love the plough and I hate the plough. And I think that's a really good term, really, in terms of sometimes you just might need to use it. I think um, it's a really good point about not being railroaded in terms of definitions and kind of classifying ourselves as regenerative or organic or conventional. And a big part of what we're doing here at Loddington is is just trying to avoid falling into the trap of defining yourself and railroading so you, you don't have options. And I think it's a really good, uh, really good example. I mean, you know, in terms of the regenerative approach, in terms of it's really about disturb the soil as little as possible. But Ben, you've done quite a bit around, certainly around black grass. And sometimes you've just got to use whatever tools are available. What would you say for you guys that are out on farms meeting farmers and you've obviously got people that are coming to you because they want to make a change and then there's people that maybe the naysayers that say well it's not going to work on my farm and and you know within the context of cultivation and tillage for example Ed how do you say between the two people that would like to get on with it but are convinced they can't and how do you deal with that? I mean, my thing is always to say, try, try it. And that doesn't always mean having to invest in machinery. That's that's seen as a big barrier to changing. But actually, you can change an awful lot about the farm and the way it does things without having to change machinery instantly. You know, we've done a lot of adapting bits of kit that are already on farm or just using them slightly differently. Yeah. Um, I think just going back to the previous point as well, I think... It, Part the whole part of regenerative agriculture is having all the tools in the toolbox available to you. You know, we yeah. don't we we've not gone organic because occasionally we want to use pesticides, but we use them responsibly. Mm. Just the same with tillage. You know, if if it's appropriate in that field or in that that on the on a farm that year to do a bit of tillage, then that that should be seen as as one of the tools. And I guess as we go through this, these sort of five key principles, the reality is is that no single one of them works in isolation, does it? Mm. Ben, in terms of do you want to just talk through why that's such an important principle in terms of minimising um, soil disturbance in region ag? No. Go on. <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> Cheer up. Well, I, I was just about to, just about to uh, follow on from Ed, funny enough, talking about, um, you, you were asking about the barriers. And interesting enough, it's often the people that have gone out and bought the drill that then come and call us for help. It's very rare that somebody asks for help before they start a journey. And more often than not, it's the journey's gone terribly wrong. And to be honest, you've got to remember probably three generations now, four generations perhaps, have grabbed a can, a bottle, a packet or a piece of machinery mm. to solve all their problems. So, of course, it was far easier to go and buy a £120,000 drill and not all of a sudden I'm going to be a no-tiller than to actually buy a spade and go and have a look yeah. at whether your saw was anywhere near ready. So, for me... There are very few barriers. It's generally bad experiences. So they, they, you go and buy a £120,000 drill, your, your yields fall off a cliff because your saw wasn't ready, and you wonder why um, there's some huge problems. And then, of course, regen ag doesn't work. Of course. Well, I think that is one big barrier, is, is attitude to, towards change. And I, I don't think it's just our industry that's f- affected by that, to be honest. You see that in all, all industries. Anyway, you were asking what, why, why is the do not disturb yeah. the soil so, so important. So, so interesting enough, soil has an amazing and wonderful ability to provide itself and plants because of the symbiotic relationship between soil and plants with uh, the ability for all microbes to live within itself, to regulate water, nutrients, heat, and, and everything else it should do that as we disturb it we create an artificial environment in which it allows it to do it for a very short period of time which means we've got to disturb it again so the very idea of uh, of no till or doing less and less soil disturbance 
is to allow the sword to become a naturally functioning part of an ecosystem. So in actual fact, it's, it's something that gives rather than takes. So about 4,000 4, years ago, they invented the plough. And that was more of a, a method of weed control. It was, if you've got something that competes with the thing you're trying to grow for food, then how, how do you do it? So by turning the soil or inverting soil upside down, will um, generally keep all weeds and things away. You plant your crop and hopefully the crop has a competitive advantage over the weeds that then might come back. Unfortunately, 4,000 years, so 3,950 years, it worked incredibly well because ploughs usually went to a depth of about 10 centimetres or 4 inches and that was just actually cycling biology. Biology can live in the soil up to about that depth. And we know this because if you ever see a fence post, whether it's in your garden or out in the field and you see it where it rots, and it will always rot at about ground level or just below or slightly just above, which is where your biology lives. And that is the very thing that is actually killing your soil, or killing your post or rotting it. So that, that worked brilliantly. And then all of a sudden we invented a thing called a tractor and decided that we could do more. To start with, the plough was very small and, and it was replacing the horse-drawn plough and that worked very well. And then unfortunately we decided we wanted to play more. So we decided to use wider furrow widths. And wider furrow widths meant that the only way you could go wider with a plough is to go deeper. And so it started a terrible journey of wider plough, plough furrow widths, deeper ploughing and more horsepower. And unfortunately it becomes that perpetual motion of saw destruction rather than saw cycling. I mean, the, the journey we've been on is, has been, you know, based on evidence, hasn't it? You know, you, you put, put this input in and you get that output. And so it, it's been a gradual creep. And you can it's, it's easy to sit here now and identify all the problems. But, you know, farming is where it is today because of hundreds of years of, of experience and demonstrating, you know, science demonstrating that, that certain things have certain, certain outputs. So, yeah, it's, a, it's about understanding that and starting to, to roll it back. That said, Ed, Edward Faulkner in 1940 wrote a wonderful book called The Plowman's Folly, mm. and it's well worth a read because he predicts pretty much everything and that's gone wrong now. So, um, he, yeah, he worked well ahead of his game. I think um, it's important just to note that soil disturbance doesn't just mean tillage as well. We're talking chemical fertilisers and, and pesticides as well. And, that. and we, we always look at those sorts of things in terms of damage that they do when they get somewhere that they shouldn't be, but we never actually looked at what that what effect they have on the soil. Yeah. And it's, it's fairly catastrophic. Well, almost, it, almost as bad as, as tillage. Yeah, as a herbicide, you know, the glyphosate as a compound is incredibly effective at killing plants that we don't want in our cropping systems but it's all it was originally developed as a an antibiotic of course so well it holds t- it has four patents two, two of those one's an antimicrobial and the other one's a biocide yeah so you know <laughs> when, we're, when we're trying to think about developing biology within our soils and then applying large doses of a biocide yeah yeah, yeah. Although, although I'm still waiting to see evidence, if I'm absolutely honest, to see, you know, I've asked a simple question, what, what's worse, some tillage or some glyphosate? Yeah. It's not a really tricky question, no. you know, and, and it'd be really nice to have a, a definitive answer. Everyone keeps telling me the work's been done, and then nobody shows me it. Mm. Um, so until somebody can, and that's the beauty, as Ed touched on, regen ag, we've got both options. Yeah, we've got both options, and if we, you know, if we find out that glyphosate, in actual fact, isn't half as damaging as we thought it would be when you compare it to tillage, well, in actual fact, it should be accelerated. In so much as we're protecting the soil. If on the flip side it's a problem, 
Well, mm. then we can do some scarification and yeah. light surface tillage and that sort of thing, knowing that that's far better. Well, that's why, yeah, minimising tillage, minimising use of inputs rather than elimination. It's, yeah. it's all about starting the journey, isn't it? So it's a, it's about the principle is don't disturb the soil, but the reality is, as you say, Ben, you get on a journey and you start to reduce. It's all about reducing impact on natural systems. Weaning. Weaning off. Mm. There you are. Second, second principle, we're going to roar into keeping the soil covered. I think Gabe Brown refers to it as armour on the soil um, yeah. about protecting such a valuable resource. Obviously in conventional farming systems we've historically spent a lot of time with ground, you know, there was always a classic, you know, get it ploughed over in the autumn, leave it so the frost can get into it, so you've got a really good seabed for the spring, you know, acres and acres of bare soil with nothing growing in it. How do you see the journey from that kind of model to the, the way that Regen Ag deals with it, Ben? Um yeah, <laughs> far too early. I, I just, I'm sorry. I thought, just thought you were going to say Ed, and you absolutely thrown me. Right, let's try that again. So Ed, Ben's useless. Ben's in no use to us. You know, when you're just like, you said what? <laughs> what was the question that Ed was going to answer? I just wasn't even listening to you. <laughs> Uh, Over to you, Ed. (laughs) So, um, yeah, keeping the soil covered for me um, really means protecting it from weather. You know, high-intensity sunlight can be just as damaging as as any other weather event, to be honest. So it's keeping it covered as much as we can all year round. That really comes down to residues. So trying to keep residues in place, keep them on the surface rather than necessarily incorporate them. Worms much prefer residues on the surface to feed on. And, and in our part of the world, on predominantly light sandy soils, it's about protecting them from rain and trying to keep it in the field. Yeah. yeah and, that, and I guess that comes back to the tillage thing as well, because if we're keeping keeping residues on the surface, it's about leaving them there rather than trying to incorporate them. And also just growing crops, you know, green crops growing totally. on, on the surface. And I guess it's that thing that what we don't understand, yeah, what we don't understand very often about our soil is how vulnerable it is to the things you're talking about a lot of people don't think about just rain or uv or wind you know fluctuations in temperature and where the top 10 centimeters of our soil are incredibly biologically active to not actually put any kind of protection over that we all live in warm air-conditioned houses and work in offices and all the rest of it and we're very careful to modify our environment but when it comes to the soil, we seem to have been more than happy to just leave it completely exposed to the elements and then wonder why it's not functioning like it should. Are you? Have you been listening, Ben? Are you, you I am listening, though. Yeah, good. Yeah. Very interesting, James. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. I, th- I think the thing for me is when we start talking about biomimicry and copying what, what nature does, and what I find fascinating is in nature, things get buried because of soil building. And it seems that everything we do in agriculture seems to expose what was buried. So we, we must be doing the opposite of what nature had intended, which is why we're now seeing Roman floors, we're seeing drains that were put in by hand, we're seeing all sorts of things, which means we're losing the very thing. And for me, it's, it's as a farm owner on highly erodible soils over in the West, I own a farm. In actual fact, I don't own, what is a farm? A farm is, is just a load of soil. Well, if I'm throwing my sword down the river, what do I end up with? A load of rock. So, for me, it's the most valuable asset, or the only asset that I own, technically. And why on earth would I be getting rid of it? But a lot of our farm goes under the river Y flooding. And for years, we've sort of losing various amounts of soil. For those that ever see pictures of the river Y in flood, it generally runs in a chocolate brown colour. 
So during the winter now I've decided to fish for other people's soil. So I grow great big biomass cover crops and they trap an awful lot of silt and nutrients that are coming down the river. And I'm, I'm building my soil down by the river where most people are, are losing theirs. And it's a very simple way of doing things. It, it, it doesn't have to be that tricky. But for me, the real importance of keeping this soil armoured is to keep my asset where it is and actually try and build it so that when I give it to my children, they have something to farm. Hmm. Living roots. I think two and three quite them go together, actually, that in terms of protecting soil, stabilising it. They, do, they work hand in hand. But living roots then brings in the aspect of that living root in the soil is constantly feeding soil biology with exudates and, and getting nutrients back in return and that's essentially what that boils down to for me is always trying to keep that process happening in the soil. Do you want to explain Ed a bit more on that because there'll be people listening in that aren't quite familiar with I think most people think that bearing in mind that there'll be a lot from gardeners and people like that the roots primary function is to take things in Mm-hmm. And I think one of the most important things is to explain actually the opposite is, is generally the, is the primary function. Yeah, that is exactly it. People will assume that roots are there to take in water and nutrients, but perhaps don't quite understand the, the processes involved. So essentially a plant is taking sunlight and CO2 and through the process of photosynthesis, pumping down carbon-rich root exudates out into the soil. And in return, things like bacteria, fungi and other parts of the soil food web will feed that plant back with nutrients. And of course, the more expansive root system you have, the more access it has to water as well. So we could go into all sorts of depth on what roots do and particularly favourite of yours is the rise of age cycle we're leaving How that for we today <laughs> but so I mean effectively I mean my, one of my analogies is always uh, is about plants effectively being solar panels converting the energy of the sun and creating energy and of course the plant needs some energy for itself to grow and reproduce but the rest of that it trades with the soil like you're saying it it makes me chuckle when people talk about coming up with technological solutions for getting carbon out of the Mm. atmosphere and putting it in the soil and most people that know anything about a plant would just be saying well what shouldn't we just have more plants plant more plants we don't not necessarily needing factories but it's that piece that plants build soil you know plants through the trading with the soil food web being part of the soil food web and then of course when they die and break down into humus back into the soil again providing more food so this whole thing if plants are cycling nutrients and feeding the soil and physically building the soil as part of their end of life and that whole cycle then surely it makes sense for high functioning soils to have plants growing on as much as possible how does that fit in, Ben? I mean, and because we're talking about here, one of the principles again, which is about keeping living roots in the soil. We spend in our farming systems and a massive amount of time without any living roots in the soil because we take the crop off and then plough everything up and do things differently. So give us some examples, Ben, of how you can keep that going. Because I've got people that say, well, you can't do that because we need the straw for the beef herd or you can't under-sow, you can't have cover crops because of another part of the system. Uh, which may be true, but you can in many instances as part of rotations or that sort of thing. Yeah, and I also think one of the first thing to do is actually link the uh, living roots to the soil disturbance too. I think Ed touched on the fact that, or was it yourself, James, touched on the fact that a plant spends quite a lot of its energy feeding the soil and takes a little bit for itself. In a disturbed soil where biology isn't functioning well or where you've destroyed biology, you can imagine the amount of percentage that a plant is having to put into the soil to actually reinstate the soil into a health in the way a plant can exchange nutrients. And it's been shown that up to 95% of a plant's whole energy is used in actually trying to make associations in the soil where it's disturbed. 
So if you're trying to get a crop from a plant and your plant that's supposed to be producing few is just working its damnedest to rebuild the soil, you're not going to get as much, eh? Exactly. So the whole idea is, in actual fact, if you have a soil that's fully functioning and therefore hasn't been disturbed that much, then the plant doesn't have to use half as much energy in making associations to the soil. Therefore, it can put an awful lot more energy into itself and therefore you, you're going to end up with better yields. And I think, I think that shows itself very much in no-till crops where they might look fairly poor early spring, and then all of a sudden they seem to just just get up and go. And that's often the time that many people lose their nerve and cover it with fertiliser or, or do something because their crop isn't looking spectacularly good. And in actual fact, again, it's part of the learning process of understanding how no-till crops are actually slightly different than the ones that are planted conventionally. But in terms of keeping living roots in the soil, we've got quite a lot of experiments going on. I say experiments, they're, they're, they're more than experiments these days because they're, they're farm scale. But one example that we're using, and this is to minimise glyphosate use as well, and look at whether there is the um, opportunity one day of becoming organic no-till, which I think is the aspiration of nearly every regenerative farmer, but whether we ever get there isn't a question. But we're using some understory um, clover crops the idea being that we plant a low-growing clover in the base of a crop, and the, the idea being that it will stay there as many years as we possibly can. Lots of ideas behind the reason we plant this clover. Number one being Mother Nature will always look at a way of covering her soil. So if our crop isn't totally covered the soil, then she generally puts something else there, which we classify as a weed. So if we grow our own weed or our own living mulch, then perhaps you won't put as many weeds into that system. So clover does a very good job at that. Of course, clover being a legume is a nitrogen-fixing crop as well. And there is the opportunity there where some relationship between the plant and the plant and the crop that you've drilled will exchange some nitrogen. So fix it from the atmosphere and give it to our plant. And more importantly as well, that when you harvest that crop, so let's say a, a winter wheat crop with an undersown clover, you cut that crop in July, end of July for instance, beginning of August, you have a, an instant living root that's already in the base of the crop, which of course in the UK especially we're very, very poor at harvesting. At the end of the day, us as farmers, we're sunlight farming. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the time when the energy is greatest from the sun is where we don't have anything in the ground, which is obviously in, in July, August, September, when the sun is at its highest. So in actual fact, as soon as we've taken that crop, the clover can then soak up all of that sun's energy. It grows like mad. And as it's growing like mad, you've got lots of options before you plant the next crop. You could graze it, you can cut it and bale it and feed it to livestock. So all of a sudden, you end up with two crops coming off what is equivalent of the same field. So it's a very, very useful method of keeping the soil with A, living roots, B, soil surface, and C, undisturbed. So it pretty much covers the first three uh, parts of that, unfortunately. When you look at number four, it probably contravenes that. But um, <laughs> uh, this is the problem with having that balance. So that, that's one option. Of, of course, we then have catch crops. So if you haven't got these clovers, we plant a crop between crops just to harvest as much of that sun's energy as we possibly can. And then we have cover crops as well, which generally cover the soil all through the winter. So in comparison to where you, you, you were talking about leaving it ploughed and left like that all winter, we'd prefer to see living roots in the soil. And you can either graze that with livestock through the winter and take them off the grassland or just leave it there to just hold and bind the soil and, and hopefully create a bit more soil by adding a bit more organic matter in the spring. Well, that's, that's the other thing as well that roots are doing there. You know, we're, when we till soil, we're artificially creating a, a structure or destructuring that soil so that a, a seedling of a, of a crop that we go and plant can get its roots down and get away. But if you're maintaining living roots in that soil all the time, then you are naturally creating that, that structure and that environment that a, that a seedling will grow in 
anyway. That makes sense. So, so yeah. keeping living roots in the soil is a way of eliminating tillage or reducing it. Because by maintaining soil structure, you then hold on to water. You then have functioning <coughs> biology, which means nutrients are made available to plants. Exactly. So we're used to sort of breaking down all of that natural resilience, but then having to provide our crops with all the inputs. Absolutely. You know, be it irrigation, be it nutrition, be it you name it. But we almost, we start the process by making our crops dependent on more and more by breaking up these sort of fundamental principles in the first place. So, yeah. Ed, have you got a, have you got a sort of a go, if you go onto a farm and somebody wants to make first steps into changing the way they do things, and obviously, for, certainly for arable farms, it's, there's always a conversation around cover crop. And I think between us, we had plenty of people that will just say, you know, we can't grow cover crops or cover crops don't work for us. Um, therefore, we're not interested. Mm. Going into a situation like that or possibly less convinced that it can't work but what's your first step into getting into cover crops and keeping more growing roots in the soil okay well most people will have an opportunity at some point in the rotation to grow either a cover crop or a catch crop i mean even if you grow the classic rotation from the past 10 years of wheat wheat rape there's 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 an opportunity there between the rape crop and the wheat for a catch crop so even if that's somebody's rotation there's an opportunity there to try it and it is just a case of having a go but i find it very difficult to give blanket well you can't give blanket recommendations for cover crops because every every farm every field every crop is different but you do need to just have a think about what you're doing and and how you're going to drill them how you're going to destroy them what effect might it have on your following crop what what drill have you got to drill your following crop how are you going to deal with residues and just giving a bit of thought to it makes sure that you know it's a success rather rather than a failure and i think too often people have just jumped in and not yep. really thought about the consequences of the cover crop that they're growing and how to manage it yep. and just giving it a bit of thought and attention to detail makes sure it's a success and then once people have seen it once seen the benefits they're usually on onto a roll then I think the difficulty is actually putting a financial return on, on cover crops. It's, it's very difficult to say I've spent X amount on cover crop seed and establishment and I've got X amount back in you know in pounds, shilling and pence. I mean, there's certainly potential to reduce nitrogen in the following crop and you can put financial value to that. But how do you value better soil structure? How do you better extending your drilling window in the spring or, or bringing it forward by two weeks? How do you value better drainage? better organic matter better soil biology it's really difficult to put numbers on that yeah and and that's sometimes where it's difficult to convince people but i think it's just getting them to try it and to demonstrate what it can what it can deliver and it's long-term farming yeah yeah unfortunately it's something that we haven't done for an awful long time Mm. you know it's like planting a planting an oak tree it's not going to be me that benefits from the shade of that oak tree but my my children or grandchildren will so it's, it's very much the same as building soil Growing cover crops is allowing us to do less of other things, if that makes yeah. sense. If you're growing cover crops, you should be able to till less. If you're growing cover crops, you should be able to put on less fertiliser. So actually, if you're growing cover crops but not changing anything else, then it's just an added cost. Yeah, true. Yeah, so there's got to be there's got to be a part of a system. Yeah, and you got to like you say it's it's really important to make it work. It's interesting what you said about ending up with a cover crop that you're not sure what to do with. I took a photo of me standing in a, a cover crop down on the farm the other week, and it was about eight feet tall, which was amazing, full of flowers, and it's doing everything I want it to do. It's cycling nutrients in the soil. It's full of pollen and nectar. It's rammed full of insects and bees, and brilliant. And then now someone what said, "What are you going to do with that then?" <laughs> and I thought well, that's a very good point. So we thought, well, we'll put the sheep. In. Well, so we tried to put the sheep in but they couldn't get in they couldn't get anywhere near it so they all just ran straight through the electric fencing and dispersed themselves across the farm which is for anyone that has anything to do with livestock will know that's all part of the process but 
Interestingly, we then had some gale force wind and torrential rain which flattened the cover crop and since then the sheep have been in and have done a really good job of, well, finishing lambs on it and they've done incredibly well and we're now in a position where you've got something you can actually deal with. But it's about building a system, isn't it? Because it's, like you say, it's really easy to jump in. So I put the cover crop in because I want to remediate some of the effects of a conventional orchard that's been on that ground for, for years and years before that. And I put in the, the right sort of thing. I mob grazed it through the winter and, and demonstrated an incredible response response to how things can work I mean I've never seen a crop grow like it grew and it's 17 species plus what is already growing there the effect of the livestock so proving loads of concepts but then it's like okay and I think this is one of the big issues for farmers um, and it's it goes back to you guys your roles in terms of practical implementation of of a a changing system because it's quite daunting for somebody that's been part of a farming system for their entire working life it is quite daunting to just start throwing some of your tools away and turning your back on the convention as it were but yeah i think we've come up with some kind of solution down there but it's tricky yeah but i also think and i don't like using the word carbon because it's far too overused and a pretty simplistic. Well, yes, but well, I use this analogy and it works quite well, that if you consider, if we put it more carbon into our soil than we take out, then that's a good thing, and that includes the atmosphere too. Therefore, if we've got a cover crop that's taking carbon, obviously through photosynthesis, we're using sunlight and, and carbon dioxide and precipitation and putting an awful lot of the carbon into the soil, whether it's feeding microbes or not, it's a good thing. That, that's, doing, that's doing a cultivation for us. Or we can burn diesel to create soil structure. So we can either sequester carbon and put carbon into our soil to create soil structure, or we can burn diesel to create soil structure. It's a bit of a no-brainer. Yeah, I'll go along with that. So for me, yeah, that, that's really important when, when making decisions on cover crops. But the most people that come up to you and say they failed, and I'll be absolutely honest, I, I had a terrible experience with cover crops almost 10 years ago on a farm. The first cover crop we ever grew was white mustard, mm-hmm. um, planted at about 10 kilos a hectare, and ended up with soil that resembled snot. It was just absolutely <laughs> disgusting stuff. So that was terrible. Never give up the first time. So the following year, it was like, no, no, we got that wrong. It should have been tillage radish right, yeah. or daikon radish so we planted water wall daikon radish and um and then we planted spring oats and they got eaten by the slugs so um we we pretty much gave up on the on the fact that cover crops were an absolute waste of time and to be honest you have two bad experiences and it takes a while to to start again (laughs) if i'm absolutely honest which brings us very nicely on to point four yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, diversity yeah yeah, so it's about growing a diverse range of crops and picking up from what you're saying there, Ben. I think it's quite easy to sit here and chat away about all these different bits and pieces, but it's really important that I think all of us have had pretty significant cock-ups. No, you know, you've got to... <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say I'm still having massive ones now? <laughs> I mean, but, but I think one of the most important things of, of becoming a region, and, and diversity, um, we've just mentioned this, and I think diversity in everything. So you make your business like yourself, you know, you've diversifying in, in things you're doing and, and I'm doing the same at home, loads of enterprises and they're all working well. But what that allows me to do is have a bit of fun on the farm as well. And whether you call them cock-ups, learning experiences or whatever, I've got at least five, if not 10% of my farm, which is the bit I really enjoy seeing, whether it's yeah. go, going really well or really badly. It really does take an awful lot of pressure off and you say, well, this is the year I've gone really extreme on this. Oh, my goodness, look at that. Thank goodness I've got some glyphosate in my armoury <laughs> because otherwise we're, we're going to end up with a, with a, with a terrible, terrible problem. So um, I did have a laugh with a client the other day, actually. He's actually paying me to help him make cock-ups yeah. as much as he needs to get it right. Yeah. Exactly right. I think, yeah. you know, if you've got one crop and one customer... 
and something goes wrong with either, you're knackered as a, from a business perspective, aren't you? Yeah. And this whole thing around diversifying a business and stacking enterprises, and you've talked about it previously, Ben, about you know you can take an acre of land, and if you if you're clever about the way you use it, you can turn it into six acres just by stacking enterprises on it and taking you know multiple crops, introduce livestock, all, all manner of things that you can do to. And that's when you're in a diverse farming or business farming business situation. A failure is a relatively small failure. Yeah. And I think you're always learning from the failures anyway. It's only when you end up in a place where you've got no plan B and you have a failure, then you have a really big failure. Mm. And so we're talking about a diverse range of crops. I'm quite interested in this whole thing about on a move away from what you're talking about, Ed, with like simple not rotations because there's only two crops, so it's just two crops not not rotating. But in our farming systems, we often talk about seven-year rotations and lots of different crops following one after the other. Now, in nature, obviously, that doesn't happen very often. In nature, you don't tend to get Mother Nature saying, all right, it's time for beans this year, you know, we've we've got enough wheat. So where do you see that going in terms of that, that kind of thing between... Because I think if you've got your soil biology right, you could probably grow the same crop year after year after year after year without any... Grass, for instance. Grass, for example, does it, doesn't it? Like, on your lawn. Yeah. You know, people keep mowing that. Yeah. Wondering why, what, you know. And, and that's the easiest example. If you're not fertilising your lawn and yet you're having to keep mowing it, it, you've got a biological system that's functioning. Somehow there's some nitrogen and some, and some carbon is being sequestered and your lawn grows on the back of that. So, I mean, it's quite a simple process the more you leave it generally the more and if you left your lawn for a whole summer it'd be up to your waist and um, funny enough full of diversity very very quickly one thing nature does is try and stick diversity into everything too i mean we've got some really really incredible uh, diversity crops in the ground this year and i think rotations rotations are important yes but i think it's diversity within a crop yeah and we, we chatted about it yesterday evening and um, and for me the really big thing on on the fruit side is to stop having. So I'll, I'll usually I'll talk about the example of what we're doing for wheat growing, for instance, where we're now growing 140 odd varieties of wheat in one field. And of course, having such diversity means if a disease comes in, the chances of that disease breaking down every single one of those varieties all growing together is a fairly tough thing for that disease to do. Is it mutates? Well, what we've always done is grow a single variety, which is all almost a mutant, not a mutant. Uh, what am I talking about? It's a, it's a um, <laughs> Genetically identical, a clone, not a mutant. There you are. Yes. We're getting there. We're getting there, sorry. It was another late night. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, so um, you grow a field of clones and wonder why uh, a piece of fungus lands and mutates a few times and before you know it, that whole field falls down to that fungus outbreak because it's very easy then to jump from plant to plant to plant. So diversity is essential in everything we're doing. So rather than just talk about standard rotations... And I, and I think another really exciting thing, isn't it, Ed, is the, is the beans and oats mixes we're doing, yeah. uh, that we, we nicknamed boats. Um, and, and again, we're, what, what I find quite interesting is there's very little disease on the oats and there's very little disease on the, on the beans. And beans are notoriously quite bad in a regenerative system to stay away from fungicides. But is, is that stripped next to each other no, or no. completely mixed? together, Complete, or broadcast? No, no, no drilled, drilled. drilled conventionally, but just the seed mixed in the hopper. Right. And there, there, there is some sort of mad synergy yeah. between growing different crops together. Particularly, yeah. you know, I have a trial field of beans and oats together, straight beans on one side, straight oats on the other. And the, the beans and oats together are taller, healthier, less diseased, all harvested together and then separated afterwards. Yeah. Or, or not. Yeah. But but on that on that sense, if, if you've got animals that need to be exactly. fed... 
then then oats and, oats and beans together is something you take the two of them mixed together anyway. Uh, but of course, when, when you then end up with what I call professional, um, we've got too many professional growers. So a beef finisher, for instance, will want an identical ration to finish his animals off. It's, it's ridiculous. So, well, how do you know how many beans and oats are actually mixed in that little part compared to that little part of that part of the field? And I think this is where, this is how ridiculous farming gone, that everyone is after s- such accuracy in rationing. That, it, that it, it's not the farmer's fault. It's the demands of, of that are put on them that, that we need these cattle, and we need them this weight and this finish. And I think it's a real shame. That, and dairy herds again, we you end up with clones of, of dairy animals that are all producing massively high milk. Rather than saying, do you know what? Rather than them all getting mastitis on the same day because they've all got the same problem, why don't you stick a load of diversity? In? She might not milk anything like that one does, but in actual fact, she's got some incredible traits. Mm. And start sticking some diversity into dairy herds and. Into everything, and we we chatted about fruit and mm. last night, and I think that's probably one of the well, perhaps you want to talk about it, James. But well, I think you know it's you know for people coming in and looking at a, a modern fruit orchard, the first thing a lot of people say is they don't really look like trees, mm. and that's a, a point you've made a couple of times, Ben. Um, yeah. You know, and we were talking about the role of rootstocks in in modern fruit production, and you know why do we grow trees on different roots? So not not their own roots; they're on, they're grown on on roots from another tree. It's all been about efficiency and keeping costs down, increasing yield, and it's been the same with plant breeding for arable crops and everything else. It's all been about yield and performance in the assumption that we're going to provide the inputs. Mm. And and what we've ended up with is we've ended up with these kind of like high performance orchards that can't look after themselves and so a lot of what i'm doing with with, at loddington in terms of the apples and pears and sort of the tree crops that we're growing is trying to see how far we can go away from propping them up with all the inputs without them falling over and dying you've got apple canker and you've got things like scab and, and it's very easy in a in a modern orchard growing modern varieties on rootstocks and on you know intensive orchards it's very easy just to cock it up and have no crop at all and in fact have no orchard at all and so you know part of the conversation we were having last night (laughs) Ben as I remember getting quite irate about the fact that he he just wanted an apple tree on its own roots and I said well you know just go and plant a seed and then we the conversation went on about we don't know what variety that's going to be and why not and you know as a as an agronomist I thought Ben would have known but not a um, clue But yeah, it's the, it, I think nearly every every industry, you know, we've got really good at measuring the wrong things. And it's something you've raised before, Ben. But it's all been about upscaling, about economies of scale, about centralising, so get everyone together so, we, so we're competitive and about market forces and cheap food and all the rest of it. And, you know, when we start having these conversations around about doing things differently you know my vision for a, a, my modern orchard my 10-year vision for an orchard is not the orchard that i have today mm. because it's because i don't have resilience and diversity and and opportunities you know we've we're railroaded into if i've got a modern intensive orchard it's a modern intensive orchard and it's very difficult to retrofit a lot of the stuff we're talking yeah. about into it well, I mean, uh, sorry, I was just about to say, that the problem is at the moment on regenerative ag in the fruit sector on trees, it's easier for us on annual crops because we can just change something year on year on year. But, but essentially you've got a Formula One racing car that you are now currently trying to feed diesel. Yeah. A really low input, low, low. And, and unfortunately what's going to happen, I, I predict, is fairly disappointing. Because they are so reliant on massively high inputs that, interesting enough, are failing because of resistance and the way biology is mutated and, and we have all these problems. 
So I can only foresee a future where exactly what you're talking about. We're going to have to take a few steps back. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have. To, we're going to have to let nature grow a tree that looks like a tree. And I think, interesting enough, um, like you've got all these dwarfing genes you were talking about last night, which are, you know it's fascinating to listen to, which prevents a tree from growing, so you can pick them easily. But I just wonder, and, and I've been thinking about it most of the night, funny enough, and I thought, well, this is where things like the small robot company start to develop robots that can climb trees or go over the top of trees and pick, you know, with technology to pick apples off a much more traditionally grown tree than actually try and make it simpler to pick them, but but actually um, become massively high input. So You don't need that uniformity then, do you? But then, but then I, I found it fascinating when you were talking about the biannual part of a tree and how... So I, I must admit, I'm, I'm rearing up to plant an orchard at home, of course. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually going to plant some alley crops of fruit trees. Yeah, um, it's a great idea. And I'm going to grow them from. I'm literally yeah, going seedlings. To seedlings. Absolutely right. They're going in this year. As soon as it comes to September, I'm going to start planting my apple tree and just see what happens. It's a big long-term project. My children will probably be totally horrified by the time they have to pick them in thirty years' time. But it won't be my problem then. Daddy, where are the apples? <laughs> yes. <laughs> None this year, kids. <laughs> no. Yeah. I think all of these principles are important, but diversity for me is something you just, we just keep coming back to all yeah. the time because. Yeah. It's for us. It's important as much as I mean. It's here because we look at this really in terms of soil management. So we grow a diverse range of crops because soil biology, like us, likes a varied diet. Yeah. You know, we've had a baking sandwich for breakfast, but we had. We so what do you call it? Three. <laughs> if we had that three times a day for the rest of our lives, we, I'd we, die. We wouldn't thrive. That was sourdough yeah. bread with multi-seeded <laughs> sourdough bread bin, and I'm sorry I over-toasted it, but it was diverse. <laughs> so we need a diverse diet, just yeah. like our livestock needs a diverse diet. We just need to, to move away from these sort of monoculture production. And, yeah, well, you touched on it, and, and, and like you say, when you start considering that a healthy soil is equivalent of 10 cows of livestock per hectare, they're not all going to want to feed off a wheat root. No. Or anything so yeah. yeah, and having diversity in a cropping system reduces pests and pathogen attack. Yeah. So that carries over into livestock. So if they have a varied diet, it reduces pests and pathogens in, in, in them and, and likewise in us. Can you just explain, Ed, why, why we, we go for multi-species cover crops? Well, I guess there's a couple of reasons, really. I mean, I'm yet to see this happen, but if you've got eight, nine, ten species in a mix and two of them don't work, you've still got six or eight left. Mm. So it's spreading risk from that point of view, but it's also delivering multiple benefits. You might have a legume in there, which is which is fixing nitrogen. You may have a brassica in there, which has got nice deep tap roots to help with soil structure. You know, There's lots of different plant species all doing different things, both above and below ground. But also it's, it, is, it is always reducing that risk, because much like with wheat blends, much like with a diverse diverse rotation and having a diverse cover crop you're not exposing yourself to problems yeah i think one of the things you hit on at the start of that was quite important in in so much as don't be disappointed if you plant a cover crop and the whole thing gets covered in in, in one thing it's your it's the way your soil is is reacting all the climate in which you've, you've planted it and that sort of thing the whole point of diversity you might end up with a monoculture but but that's because you've planted diversity and allowed that to select Mm. And I think that's really important that, that in actual fact, at times, the soil or the climate and, and things you plant, uh, planted it in are conducive to something doing far better than, than others. Mm. Yeah, I think from that, you know, Mother Nature is the best teacher of all, isn't she? It's, um, you know, there's always a reason for the, the outcomes. Um, I mean, this, it's not 
this isn't a particularly scientific phrase, but there is there is definitely a coming back to what I said about the the boats. There's a synergism definitely between growing species together. Yeah. And if you grow a field of mustard on its own, that that mustard and that soil underneath that mustard will look very different to the mustard that's in a diverse cover yeah. crop mix yeah. and the soil underneath a diverse cover crop mix. Unfortunately, Charles Darwin wrote all about this a very 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 long time ago. Oh, yeah. Some of the best books I've read on this subject yeah. were written in the 30s and 40s. Well, yeah, Darwin came before that. Of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we knew it all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we're only relearning, aren't we? Yeah, that's, that's very true. Because interestingly, of course, what people, when people are trying to do things better, they, they wanted to use mustard as a biofumigant. So you'd grow a massive amount of mustard, mow it all off, and then plough it in in order to... <laughs> in order to kill. To, to kill something in the soil that was going to make the next crop difficult. But, I mean, logically, you're thinking about that, it's not going to select what it kills in the soil, is it? And so it's a biological solution that is not a chemical, you know, does away with some chemistry, but it's still doing completely the wrong thing. Well, that, that's so, why I have this massive problem with organic farming. Generally, organic <laughs> farming is no different than conventional. They're, they're focused on killing stuff. Some organic farming. Well, 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 OK, the principles <laughs> of organic farming are still based around killing and controlling. Sure. Whereas regenerative agriculture, the idea is to is to actually fill things with biology. Yeah, you know, is actually focus on the life rather than the death, and I think that's probably quite quite significant. Mm. We've talked about all these different bits and pieces, and and we've touched on livestock, bringing you know, and, and as the fifth principle of regenerative farm that we've been talking about. You know, I'm a fifth generation fruit grower. We've had livestock on the farm certainly two generations ago, and I've bought rightly or wrongly for my own mental health, but bought livestock back onto the the farm, and have seen some real benefits. And Ben, you you're yeah, I know your farm is covered in just about every creature that is on the <laughs> planet. I think you were talking about uh, trying to get a rear into a livestock trailer the other day, but um, yeah. we'll come back to that in a minute. <laughs> Ed, have you got any examples of where you've... Because this is a real step change, isn't it, for is, yeah. for, for arable farmers, certainly. I mean, logically, the best thing is to partner up with your neighbouring sheep farmer mm-hmm. and start to integrate between specialists rather yeah. than being a, a fool like me that decides to take the challenge on myself. Have you, yeah. So have you got some experience of that sort of thing? I think generally what I say to people is principles one to four are non-negotiable. Yeah, the fifth one, which is bringing animals back, will definitely take things to the next level. But yeah. it's not always essential, and I think it's very difficult for for a business that's geared totally towards crop production yeah. to then suddenly be able to integrate livestock. But increasingly, it's being done, and it's generally working in partnership with yeah. with, with other local businesses, and and it can work really, really well. Actually, it's it, it's providing more forage and more cover for a livestock business that might not necessarily have it at that time of the year. Yeah, it's a way of how helping arable farms deal with cover crop residue and it's bringing muck back in in quite a lot of cases so it's being done more and more it's not always the easiest on a, on a purely arable business but as we discussed last night do we need to sort of stop calling a farm business That's right. one yeah, or yeah. the other you yeah. know should a farm just be a farm and a it's farm. got various different enterprises including livestock on it yeah and i, I tend to agree yeah but that won't always be possible for people. No, true. Ben, I think in the previous podcast, we talked about the menagerie at Townsend Farm. Mm. Picking up on what Ed said, and do you see, you know, we're sort of fortunate, and if you've got an inquiring mind, you can you can have a bit of a play and look at the effects. And I've been amazed at the effect of intensive, you know, managed animal input onto the land. What have you been doing on other farms beyond your own farm, where you've got everything you've got going on? What have you been doing to try and get this fifth principle into some of your clients well, funny enough uh, and that's why and that's why i've ended up demonstrating on my farm it's very hard to convince people 
They know it's the right thing, they know it's the way forward, but trying to convince somebody to, let's be honest, no need to wake up in the morning mm. um, to check on livestock, can go on holiday pretty much as and when, I want a day shooting or I want to go and do something, and, it, and off you go. And unfortunately it's become a little bit entrenched, certainly in this last generation, that you're either a livestock farmer or you're an arable farmer, and there is very, very little crossover. And even on, even on farms that I call mixed farms, they're not mixed at all. They have a livestock enterprise, so a dairy farm, for instance, and that's the part of the dairy, and there's your my arable, and the integration of the two just don't even yeah. don't even come close. So, so I, I'm struggling, if I'm honest, to get people to really embrace introducing livestock back onto the arable and become what I call a proper mixed farm, which is why I decided to do a huge amount of demonstrations myself at home. And interesting enough, living on the Welsh border. We've had sheep on tack come down and graze our cover crops for years and years and years. They graze our cover crops and generally graze most of our soil as well because they're after not only the um, the cover crops but the shirt off my back, I believe, um, <laughs> in terms of value for money. So, you know, and trying to explain to, to either a livestock farmer that's used to seeing a beautiful field of turnips to leave a third of them in the ground because mm. that's going to protect my soil just became impossible. Yeah. So in the end, it was like the only thing I can actually do is actually turn and buy some livestock and start showing and demonstrating and tweeting and doing what I do to show that in actual fact, it can be very simplistic as well. Yep. There is no, you know, um, we have our flirt all bunched up at the moment. So all our ewes and lambs and our cattle and our alpacas and goats are all in one great big mob. Your flirt. My flirt. Yeah, yep. flock and a herd. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Like the boat. Like the boat, yeah, yeah. so yeah, my flirt. Boats and flirts. Yeah, so um, in, in the, the important for me in a flirt is diversity, so I've got cattle, I've got different breeds of cattle, I've got five different breeds of sheep, I've got three different breeds of goat, I've got some alpacas that are, I've no idea why I've got alpacas, they, 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 in actual fact for the lambing side of things they, they protect the, the sheep away. and they did a fantastic yeah. job at that, I'll be honest. So there's diversity in there, those, there's diversity in the way they graze and everything. And I open the fence up every morning to move the mob when I'm at home, and they trot past me, uh, all very healthily, and uh, that way I get to inspect the animals. And it takes about 35 seconds. Mm. And as long as you move them on decent herbal laser or on decent cover crops and that sort of thing, and they're not grazing with their faces pressed to the floor, and funny enough, diseases relatively become an issue. So, yeah, I'm struggling to to get a lot of people to pull it on board. It's a big business decision to start pulling livestock. And and I'm I'm trying to do it in such a way I make a bit of fun of it, but it's important for me that I'm doing it on a commercial scale. It's very easy to be labelled a hobby farmer, oh, you've got five sheep and and two chickens and that sort of thing. No, we've got 140 chickens. We've got 100 100 breeding ewes with with lambs at foot. You've got uh, 20 cattle and 28 goats and three alpacas and that sort of thing. So I'm trying to do it in such a way that people can actually realise this is not something I'm doing for a bit of fun. It's actually a demonstration of of real-life farming. I also think, um, interesting enough, it, it's no different than the, than the boats we talked about earlier, in that the yield from your oat crop is, is 100% oats. The yield from your, your bean crop is 100% beans. You plant the two together, you end up with about, 100, about 115, 120% of the two, which means all of a sudden you've got more than the, the, the 100% of growing each individually. And that's exactly the same for me with livestock on arable units, in that... The livestock farmer wants 100% for his animal. And if that happens, I end up with 0 to minus 2 to minus 10 to minus 20% for my soil. 
or I leave a cover crop in the ground, which is 100% for my soil and 0% for the sheep farmer because he's not allowed to come and see me. The way I'm trying to manage it is say, well, I want 70% for my soil and 70% for my sheep, which is 140%, which is far better than 0 or 100. So I think th- th- those are the really important parts of whether you call it enterprise stacking or that sort of thing. It's it's I farm this amount of land, but in actual fact, rather than just getting my 100% each and every time, I'm looking for 120, 130, 140 percent and you'd often think that that was because I was pushing yield way 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 beyond where nature wanted it quite the opposite in actual fact what I'm doing is working with nature in in so much as getting double benefits a lot of the time is also where these relationships work well is where the livestock owner understands the principles of what what the arable farmer is trying to achieve and when he does then it works really really well what i'm really interested in doing is coming up with a business model whereby when you go to an arable farmer who you know they cannot make it work they've got 500 acres their farming model is is struggling they don't they're not sure if they've got the energy or the you know inclination to embark upon a new way of farming and to try and make it better what I like about the the model that I'm sort of looking at is that you can actually go in with a, an entire farming system. You don't need to own land to do this, but you can pick up your regenerative farming model, go on to another farm, almost farm it for nothing, so you get the rewards and they end up with a better farm after you've finished. So you can get away with ridiculous land rents, you know, where people, you know, sort of vanity rental figures for cropping land. You know, you can, somebody who is struggling with where they take their business and where they go, where they go with their farm, that you can actually start to provide solutions. And so you, it comes down then, Ben, so you can go in and you can get a series of outcomes. The farmer gets improved soil. We as the farm could end up selling our, our knowledge. The We gain multiple crops off land that we don't even own and potentially aren't even paying rent for. Mm. And I think in some situations could be paid to farm so it's an entirely different model and i think that for those that are enlightened and are prepared to make the change i think it's actually quite exciting because there's just so much to go at there's so many four five hundred six hundred acre farms where people have no idea what to do next because you you look over the last three or four years and there's been crop failure after crop failure it's either been too wet to drill too dry to drill too wet to combine too dry that you've got no yield or because we're monocropping, we've got these monocrops and we've lost some chemical interventions. We've got crop failures due to pests, which we didn't used to have. And so there's no question that there is thousands and thousands of acres of land, hundreds of thousands of acres of land that need a change in approach. And so these guys are working really hard to help people make the change. But I also think there's a, a really interesting space developing, which is about setting up actual proper farming businesses that just go in and make the change for them. So I mean, we'll see how that develops. But have you guys got any thoughts on that? Apart from it shouldn't be me, Ben, obviously, because... Yeah, you well, just plant monocrops of orchards, wouldn't you? <laughs> I wouldn't be planting orchards, Ben. On, on rootstocks that, that can't cope. So. <laughs> Have you been listening <laughs> to what I've been saying? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, a lot, a lot of my time is spent helping businesses change, but still based on their current business model yeah. and setup. There's no doubt that it would make things easier if, if we sort of tore up the rule book and how rental agreements, farming arrangements happen, for sure. I mean, one of the big barriers to this is, you know, I speak to contractors and farmers who are renting land on three-year FPTs, and you, you can't invest long-term yeah. on that sort of arrangement. It's but, really, really difficult. So what, so what happens when BPS disappears? This is where it all, all happens. When basic payment and subsidies for millionaires owning land disappears, mm-hmm. uh, as quite rightly it, it should... There, there are an awful lot of farms that are going to go from in the black. And that's why a lot of people, if, if you're asking for barriers to change, generally, because if you're making a, a bit of money, 
You don't need a change. But that money is generally because of of, of governmental support, or or as it was, European support. When that disappears, all of a sudden there's a bit of an urgency to change. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very true. We also need to see a lot more collaboration. We mentioned it last night, didn't we? Collaboration would make things an awful lot easier, and we're we're typically pretty bad at it in in this country. Yeah, very true. Except me. Are you collaborating? Yeah, I'm brilliant. Well, as long as it's done your way. Well, absolutely. <laughs> that is a collaboration, isn't it? Ben, Ben's way or the highway. Yeah. Perfect collaboration. <laughs> well, yes. I think we've um, we've talked about boats and flirts and uh, multiple things, but in between, I think it's been a it's been a really good chat. There's loads of stuff to go at. We're um, this is just the second in our series of podcasts. We're going to keep them going. Ed, thanks for for popping down. No problem. Dro- drove me. drove through the night after all your damaging soil health activities <laughs> yesterday and then uh, and ben thanks for coming over we're off to see some vineyards today i think we are aren't we? yeah we are the regenerative farming space is a ever-evolving one so um it uh, should be an interesting day thanks for those of you that are listening and we'll catch up with you next time mm-hmm.